This clapping thing's really taken off. I'm loving it. When you can't sing, people clap. This is what I'm discovering. It's like the tension that's built up. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to see your eyes. Anyway, I can't see most else of you. Your eyes and eyebrows are looking good this morning. So thanks for being here. And let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 2. We are presently in a series as a local church going through the gospel of Luke. Luke, for those of you that are new to Sovereign Grace, is a doctor. He's a physician himself. He has become a Christian and then he's been effectively sponsored by a man named Theophilus to really go around the world and discover from this is what exactly has gone on. And he sends him on this mission so that he may have certainty in believing the things that he has been taught in and through his life. And over the last couple of weeks in Dr. Luke's opening chapter, we've just seen two incredible announcements from Gabriel, an angel, to Zechariah and Mary, and then two incredible songs as they discover that they are both going to have children, one John and one Jesus. They're amazed and they sing and cry out to the Lord. And in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, this is what happens next. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, And found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Let's pray. Lord, as we gather around your word this morning, we gather around a most familiar story. Lord, I pray then that in this moment we wouldn't just switch off under the premise of, I've heard that. Lord, would we attend to this scene as if for the first time? And would we be amazed with what we see? Lord, would you help us to slow down enough to pay attention to the details? And would we see just how incredible 
and wonderful you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, over many years in our world, there have been many different ways of selling things, or so I am informed. When you go to a mall, when you go to Westfield or Castle Towers, wherever you be, you will be stopped as you walk along the corridor. I hate that. But people are trying to sell you things. Or you go past shops, and some shops just sort of spread everything out so much, they're trying to sell you things to get you to come into the store. Well, in the 1980s, there was a selling technique that was all about reducing things to the ridiculous. And in the 1980s, this got super common. And it really came about through a US man who moved to the United Kingdom and he tried to set up this pots and pans business. It's a good business. They were good pots and pans. But the challenge that they had is they wanted $500 for this set of pots and pans. And as an Englishman, that's far too much money. And in the 1980s, that is certainly not going to happen in any way. And so this, this, this institution, this business was completely bombing. And so they decided to completely change tactics on how they would sell these pots and pans. And they used something called reducing it to the ridiculous. The way it worked is they started to invite people to have a free meal. And so they'd invite different people over to their home and they would come in a bit like Tupperware do today. They would come in and they would help these different people. And what they would do is maybe eight people sitting around the table, they would cook them a meal in these pots and pans. And so everybody would think, those pots and pans are really quite nice. Yes, they cook lovely, I know. And then at the end of the meal, he would say, listen, come over and I want to show you these pots and pans. And so that's what he would do. And inevitably, the question very quickly, in the 80s, would be like, how much do these pans cost? And he's like, don't worry about that. Just taste the food. It's good food. And Yeah, but how much do they cost? And he would say, well, they're $500. And that's when people would start to panic and like, there's no way we're going to spend $500. And what he would say then is this. He'd say, well, listen, these these pots and pans, they come with a 10-year guarantee. So imagine you use them maybe four to five times a week on the average year. So you're using them about 250 times a year. That's two and a half thousand times over 10 years where they're fully guaranteed. So it's not really $500. What you're actually looking at is 20 cents a day to use these pots and pans. And then this man would often look at the man and say, listen, when you go out to a restaurant, how much do you tip the waiter? And he would say, you know, what, five, ten percent. At which point you'd say, well, well, sir, is your wife not worth a 20 cent tip every day? At which point the wife's eyes would be bearing into the back of that man's head. Is this all you value me, 20 cents a day? And what would happen is he would get his credit card out there and then I would love the pens, yeah. So this company that was bombing, it started to be actually really successful because the start of selling became reducing things to the ridiculous. Rather than $500, let's talk about 20 cents. And I mention that because I think when it comes to this scene, it is so easy to reduce it to the ridiculous. See, for all of us, at least many of us, you've probably grown up with Christmas trees in your house. I certainly have, and what against Christmas trees, they can be a lot of fun. And on our Christmas tree growing up, there was stars, baubles that would often fall off and break, so you'd sellotape them back together and put them back on. And then at the top of the tree, there was angels. We've all grown up with that type of thing. The challenge is, when growing up for me, the angel at the top of the tree was actually just a homemade angel. It was something my brother made when he was about six. It was a loo roll with wings, with this little stick on the top that had a little halo. So my image of angels growing up was that. So you tend to reduce things like this to the ridiculous because if somebody says angel, I've got this image in my mind of this blue roll on the top of the tree growing up. Many 
been around nativity plays, whether they're in school or whether they're in the mall or whatever they be, we've all been in them, right? I certainly was. I got to play a cow once. Wonderful. You just put a stick up to your face with a little mask and moo. That's what the right time. Baby Jesus is a doll. Your two best friends are Mary and Joseph. One year I remember being a shepherd, so you get like a tea towel on your head and your dad's belt strapped around your head. And so we've all seen this scene hundreds and hundreds of times. And the challenge is it can be hard to get beyond those pictures when we come to actually assessing the truth of what it says We can reduce it to the ridiculous. But when you slow down and actually look at what is actually said, what you realize is what we have here really is one of the most incredible and awe-inspiring scenes anywhere in the Bible. And it's one of the most incredible and awe-inspiring scenes that has ever been seen in the world today. Three points then. Number one, the birth. Number two, the proclamation. And number three, the response. And my hope this morning is simple. My hope is that we wouldn't reduce this to the ridiculous. But we would just pay attention to what is written and get in the scene and realize, oh my goodness, what an awe-inspiring scene this really is. A scene that changed the world. Number one, the birth. The scene is set all the way back in verse one. This is what Dr. Luke tells us. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, that isn't just a throwaway line. Caesar Augustus was, without doubt, the most powerful man in the world at this time. The known world is being ruled and run by one Caesar Augustus. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who many of you will have heard of. He was a born fighter. He himself took on Antony and Cleopatra and won He did incredible things for the Roman Empire through his genius and strong personality. He really gave the Roman Empire the solidity that really lasted then for several centuries to come. And it was him that asked for the title Caesar Augustus. You see, prior to studying this text this week, I thought Augustus was his name. Negative. It's actually his title. I don't know what his name was. It's probably Kevin or something. I have no idea. But when he came into power, he asked for the name Caesar Augustus. It was actually a title. And Augustus at this time was simply meaning holy or revered. It was a name that was specifically just set apart for the pagan gods. He was the first person in the Roman Empire ever to be wanted to be called Augustus. And the Roman Senate said, you know what, given all that you've done, that's what we're going to go with. You can be Caesar Augustus. He's the most powerful man in the empire at this moment. Some in Greek communities actually called him savior. And he calls a census, probably for tax reasons or personnel or war reasons. And as you set set foot into this text, it can appear that Mary and Joseph are just these two small pawns in the hands of the great Caesar. That they're just doing as they're told, making their way from Nazareth to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph comes from. But actually, when you pay attention, you realize they're not pawns in the hand of of Caesar. They sit under the mighty hand of God. Even Caesar's hand, this self-confessed savior, his heart is in the hands of God himself. This has all been set up by God. See, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a prophecy that was written 700 years before this moment, 
This is what we read. But you, O Bethlehem of Phathra, which is the full name for Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, you shall come forth for me, one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. One was promised that would be born in Bethlehem that would change the world. This isn't just some setup because Caesar's decided to have a census. This is all unto the mighty hand of God. Theologian Kent Hughes says it this way. He said, they, meaning Joseph and Mary, appeared to be helpless pawns, just caught in the movements of secular history. Yet every move was under the hand of Almighty God. The Messiah would instead be, would indeed be born in tiny, insignificant Bethlehem. And as the virgin traveled, her steady beating heart, hidden from the world, kept time with the busily beating heart of God himself. Isn't that amazing? Caesar Augustus is, just thinks that he's ruling all things and making his own decisions. But ultimately, even his heart and decisions lay in the sovereignty of God. It's time. It's time for this child, this king, to be born. This king will be born in Bethlehem. So God sets it all up that now Mary and Joseph will make their way there. And it is indeed a massive trip. It would have taken likely three to four days. It was 80 miles or 120 kilometers, depending on what you understand in that. Mary herself was a 15 to 16 year old girl, eight and a half months pregnant. Have you ever seen ladies eight and a half months pregnant? They are not going to want to walk 80 miles. That's what takes place. That's what happened in those days. So they make their move from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And this is what happens when they get there, verse 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. You know, we have heard this story a thousand times, have we not? But oh my, what an astonishing and shocking scene this really is. It is astonishing because first and foremost, she is giving birth here to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is Jesus. This is God himself. This is the one who said to Job in chapter 38, verse 4, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. This is the one who marked up the heavens with the breath of his hand. This is the one who breathed out the sun and set the stars in their place. This is the one who weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He's the creator, the sustainer and goal of all creation. And here he is. The king of kings and lord of lords. God incarnate. It is astonishing when you realize who is being born here. For who would have dreamed that we would hold God in our hands? Mary did. She did exactly that. She held God incarnate in her hands. It is astonishing. And it is shocking. And it's shocking in part because of the place and the manner in which this came about. I mean, one would assume, if you just back away from the story for a moment, one would assume that Mary, as the mother of Jesus, this King of kings and Lord of lords, would surely get to give birth in the warmth of a golden palace with midwives and family around her, and then having given 
birth would place her newborn king into a brand new cot where he would be attended to. But that's not what happens at all. She doesn't give birth in some type of golden palace. No, Mary would give birth into the squalor of a borrowed stable. And my friends, don't romanticize this. The sort of postcard pictures that we all have of the stable, it wouldn't have been like that. See, this stable was the stable of a motel. It would have been run down. It would have been dark and dingy. The floor of this stable would have been hard. It would have been cold. The smell of the stable would have been one of animals and manure and straw. Only added to as Mary and Joseph try and give birth to this child by themselves. Only added to them by the sweat and the blood of all that is taking place here. This stable would have been dark, it would have been dirty, it would have been dingy. The only company that Mary and Joseph have in this moment are the animals making their sounds. The floor hasn't been swept. The smell hasn't been taken away. It is dark and dank. And there in the middle is Mary giving birth to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords with only Joseph to help. And then when the baby is born, she would wrap him in swaddling cloths. Pay attention. She did it. This is something midwives would do. Other people would do this, but there's no one else there. So she has to do it. She's just given birth to her child. She gets up and she starts to wrap him. Swaddling cloths were just like long strips of cloth. You basically like make your baby look like a mummy. Sort of wrap this baby up. It would appear that while she's doing that, Joseph is clearing out an area and it's not some nice warm cot it's a feeding trough for cattle as so he starts to unpack it and he gives takes then the child and he puts him in this feeding trough see we can so easily romanticize this scene as if it's so nice it's horrible this is not a palace this is not the place of a palace where a king would usually be born this is the place of a pauper But it's deliberate all along. For Jesus came to seek and save the lost. He hadn't come to applaud the rich or hail the princes. He'd come for those poor in spirit, the needy. Those that would recognize their need for him. And so there he is in this cold, dark, dank stable right in the middle. God incarnate. God clothed in flesh. You know, what on earth must... Mary have been thinking in this moment. I've been wondering about this all week. What must have been going through her mind? Hormones everywhere. Tired, 80 mile journey. Husband operating as the midwife. We're in a stable. What's going on in her mind? I mean, just nine months earlier... She's getting on with her life. She's like 15, 16 years old. She's probably playing house or something. And then Gabriel rocks up, breaks into her life and, and tells her, you're going to have a baby. She's like, Why? I've never been sexually intimate with a guy. Mm-hmm. You're going to have a baby. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you're going to have a baby. It's not just going to be any baby. It's going to be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's going to be the Son of God himself. For the last eight months, she's been thinking about that. And 
marinating on that. And now this child has been born. And he's over there in a feeding trough. What must have been going through her mind in this moment? What must she have been thinking about all that is taking place? Well, God in his great kindness understands what she's thinking. And he wants to bring security to her thoughts, it would appear. He wants her to know, Mary, everything you've heard. It's true. This is the king. That takes us to point two. Number two, the proclamation. Look with me at verses eight to nine. You see, it would appear that while Mary has been giving birth, and that incredible story has been unfolding, something else has been happening in the hill country of Bethlehem, up above them. This is what we read. Verses 8 and 9. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Imagine the scene. It is pitch black. The city of David, Bethlehem, is down below. These guys, they looked after sheep right up on the highlands. It is pitch black. There is no nothing to see in the sky apart from the moon and the stars to keep them company. And these shepherds, a small group of them, have gathered round in the evening, no doubt, to look after one another, see how the day had gone. And so that we don't romanticize shepherds, shepherds are the, well, bordering on lunatics of the day. Okay, sometimes we think of shepherds like Old Testament shepherds, which is like a little family business. By the time the New Testament comes, it isn't a family business anymore. The only people that are shepherds are people that seem to struggle to get jobs in anything else. Because who wants to look after sheep and protect them from wild animals and criminals and robbers? Well, people that are hard as nails themselves want to do that. It was understood at this point that shepherds were just like one rung above lepers in their social standing in the community. These were the last people on the planet to get fearful of anything. They are the Bear Grylls SAS of the day. And then something happens. A dazzling heavenly light breaks into their face. It is the sight of an angel and they are terrified. Now depending where you Grown up, this can seem strange because, like for me, my image of an angel growing up was that small loo roll on the top of my mum's tree. It's like, I don't think I was getting that. And yet angels in the Bible are not these like small cherubim playing harps with little wings. That's not what they are. Whenever you encounter somebody in the Bible seeing an angel, 99% of the time they do one of two things. They either hit the ground and worship them thinking they are God himself. Or grown men start screaming like small children because they're terrified. In this moment, these shepherds go for option two. They are terrified. They are scared stiff in response to the sight of this angel, the majesty of this angel. This angel has clearly come from the heavenly realms. This angel has been with God the Father himself and they are afraid. So the angel starts speaking, verse 10. And the angel said to them, Fear not. (laughs) Words most often used by an angel. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It's wonderful. They're there in pitch black darkness. An angel breaks in and speaks to them and tells them, listen, don't fear. 
In fact, I've come to announce to you great news. Good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It will be for all the world. They're leaning in, their hearts still no doubt beating out of their chest. And then the angel says this, verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There has never been a better announcement anywhere in the world. The Savior has come. Hope has come. The Savior, the angel specifically uses the word Savior. This is the one that they'd been waiting for for millennia. The people of God had been waiting for centuries for a savior to come. One who will make it possible for them to get back in the garden. One who will make it possible for us to have peace with God. Forgiven of our sin and reconciled to be able to be in perfect relationship with God again. This one had been promised for hundreds of years. And the angel in this moment is saying, listen, dudes, he's right down there. As you sit up here, he has just been born right down there. And this savior that you've been waiting for, this child that has been born, he's not just the savior, he's the Messiah. The one who for hundreds of years there had been hundreds of prophecies about. The Jewish mind would click into gear on this news, immediately go, Messiah, the Christ, we've been waiting for him. Yes. And tonight he's been born. He is the Christ and he is the Lord. This isn't just any baby. This is God himself. The savior that they've been waiting for, the Messiah, isn't just the anointed one. He is God. And tonight, shepherds, in the city of David, Bethlehem, he's right down there. Hope has come. You know, this was great news for these shepherds. This was life-changing news. The last 400 years, there hadn't been sight or sound of any prophecy. And this wasn't really a prophecy. This was just a direction that he's there. You know, this was amazing and great news for the shepherds. And in truth, it is without doubt amazing and great news for us as well. See, the fact that Christians have a saviour... Is one of the main things that makes Christianity so very different from every other religion in the world. See, the Bible would teach us that we have a problem. And our problem is that we are cut off from God. And because we are cut off from God, we don't need a teacher or a prophet or a messenger. We need a savior. We need somebody to get us back to God himself. We need somebody to pay a penalty so that we can be forgiven of our sin and so that we can be reconciled to God. Well, quite frankly, Buddha does not answer that problem. Mohammed does not answer that problem. Confucius does not answer that problem. Jesus answers that problem. Jesus Christ came and said, I am the savior of the world. I am the one who has come to seek and save the lost. All those who come to me, I will give you rest. You want to come to the Father? Amazing. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ claimed to be God himself and the Savior of the world. He's not just a teacher or a messenger or a prophet. No, he's a Savior. And these shepherds are hearing tonight the Savior you've been waiting for. He's been born. He's been born right down there. And he's going to be down there. Wrapped in swaddling cloths. And laying in a manger. 
You know, I love then the way everything responds to this news. And that's my third point, number three, the response. See, first of all, we see heaven responding. Verses 13 and 14, I love this. I would have loved to have been there to see it. It says, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying glory to God in the highest on an earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. It's like heaven breaks into earth at this moment. The angels cannot be restrained any longer. And a multitude arrive on the scene. You know why it says multitude? It says multitude because they couldn't be counted. We're not talking here about 10 or 50 or even 100. There are thousands in this moment of angels. Multitudes. Imagine the scene. Just a few moments earlier, you're a shepherd chatting to your mates about how's the day been. Now you've just heard that a saviour has been born. And this angel who you thought was by himself, he isn't by himself at all. The sky is now filled with angels. Heaven breaks into earth in this moment. And then the angels start to sing and praise God, singing glory to God in the highest on an earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. That expression has not been seen anywhere else in the Bible. It's like the angels can't contain themselves anymore. We have been waiting for millennia for this moment. But now the fullness of time has come as God has sent forth his son. Oh, glory to God in the highest. They are ecstatic about what is taking place in this moment. Hope has come to the world. And in this very moment then, they also sing peace among those with whom he is pleased. They are declaring over the world, hope has come. Everything you've been waiting for, the Saviour. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. That wasn't an effect put on. That wasn't an effect put on to make it sound more angelic. That was just me. You know, this very moment, the angels are singing praises to God, glory to God in the highest, and peace among men. Everything mankind had been waiting for in this moment had been fulfilled. Hope has come. The angels respond, and then the shepherds respond. In verse 12, the angels already told them that this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. They've already been instructed that way. And then in verses 15 to 17, we read as follows. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known to them the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered what the shepherds told them. Now, these shepherds, I doubt, you know, when he says haste, I think that's probably an underestimated situation here. I think they probably sprinted as fast as they could. I've got to see this kid. They are running headlong down the hill in this moment. What's happening to the sheep? Only knows. They can fend for themselves. The Savior's been born. They are running down the hill towards Bethlehem in this moment. It's not exactly a big place. They probably 
known everybody that lived in Bethlehem, and they may have known, as far as I'm aware, no one's actually about to give birth. So they head to the inn, the hotel, there must be somebody there. And if it's a manger, clue, it's probably going to be a stable. So they make their way to the stable, and there he is. There's Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I can imagine the scene at this moment. I mean, Mary may not have been a big fan of Jesus. Joseph may have been at the door. Hey, guys, you know, just giving birth and we're with the donkeys and stuff. And, but they can't contain themselves. I can just imagine them. Imagine the scene. I mean, for a start, it stinks in there. It is cold and dark. But I can just imagine these men falling over themselves to tell them, Hey, hey, this just happened. Shut up. I can just imagine as they're butting in on each other, telling Mary and Joseph, this is what just happened. We met an angel, and an angel told us about your your kid, and your kid is going to be the savior of the world, right? He's the Messiah. In fact, he's God. This is the one we've been waiting for, Mary. You've just given birth to Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And then we saw this entire angelic host, they were all singing out, glory to God in the highest, a peace among men. I've never seen and they like it, Mary. They're so ecstatic about what is taking place. And they see Jesus. It says in verse 20, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They couldn't stay down there forever, even if they'd wanted to. There were indeed sheep running wild on the hill in their absence. But as they made their way back to the sheep, they're ecstatic. We just saw the king, the Messiah, the Lord of Lords, God incarnate. He was there. Hope has come. The shepherds respond with praise before the Lord. It, it doesn't take long to realize praise is a theme in the Gospel of Luke. You see it with Mary, you see it with Zechariah. You see it with the angels, you see it with the shepherds. Praise to the Lord for all that he has done. And then Mary responds, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. She's been through so much, but now as she listens to these shepherds, her heart is full again. Wonderful. You know, for all you mums, happy Mother's Day. I'm sure you have had many moments with your children that have made your heart full. Moments when they're six years old and they make you presents that you really want. Cards, not one or two, 35, that have all been sellotaped together. So it takes you half an hour to get into each one. But you treasure these memories for the rest of your life, right? Moments with your kids that you treasure. But all those moments are just a dim reflection of what Mary is experiencing in this moment. Who would have believed it? That she would hold God in her hands. But she is. She holds God in her hands. You know, this whole section finishes with numerous responses. As heaven responds, as the shepherds respond, as Mary responds. But the implied question, I believe, as this text comes to a close, is how then are you going to respond? What are you going to do with this news? 
See, in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, Luke tells us why he has written this gospel. He says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wants Theophilus, this Roman governor likely, To live his life with faith and surety about what he's been told. The fruit of this text is faith and surety. Faith that this is true and I can stand on this and live my life in light of this. What you realize is this story unfolds. It wasn't just written for Theophilus at all. In God's sovereignty it was written for me and it was written for you as well. How will you respond? My friends, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to encourage you to respond by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Bible makes it clear we don't need a prophet or a messenger or a teacher. We need a Savior. The Bible makes it clear that God made us. He was the one that ultimately knitted us all together in our mother's womb. And he made us to find our identity and our purpose and our peace in him. And yet what we all did is we all rejected him at some time in our life. We exchanged the creator for the created. And we wanted his kingdom, but we don't want the king. And that's what sin is all about. It is a rejection of God. It's not living for God. It's living for ourselves. And because of that, the Bible tells us we're an object of wrath. In his holiness and our sinfulness, we are far from him. And we can't find our own way back. But God so loved the world, he tells us, that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God came after us. We couldn't get back to him, so he came after us. God came after us through his perfect work of his son, a son that was born into a world and had flesh just like ours, but then did something that we never did. He lived each and every day of his life for the Lord God Father. He sought to honor him and follow his word. And he did. He lived a sinless life. He lived the life that we simply have not done. And then he died at Calvary all the time saying, I'm giving my life away as a ransom for many. All those who come to me will find rest. He died at Calvary giving his life away for you and for me to make it possible that if we put our faith in him, his perfection starts to be clothed on our life and we can be reconciled to God the Father again. God came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And Paul tells us in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you will, my friends. I want to urge you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, do it today. You cannot do anything that's going to help you get back to God, that's going to help you to be forgiven of your sin, that's going to help your life make sense, apart from put your faith in Jesus. Because as we sang this morning, Jesus has paid it all for us. We just need to put our faith in him. That's what this whole gospel is about, so that you may have certainty. Put your faith in him today and know the joy of what it means to be saved. And if you're here today and you are already a believer, 
which is many of you. I want to encourage you to allow this awe-inspiring and incredible scene to fuel your faith each and every day of your life. It is so easy to reduce this scene to the ridiculous. And think of it as this thing that comes around once a year. It's about presence, I think. And completely miss the point that this is the moment that hope has come for you and for me. Allow the inspiring realities of this scene to encourage you every day of your life. And would you live your life in in faithful, sure response. Jesus has come. Hope has come. Live in the good of it. Let's pray.